Please join me now in turning in your Bibles to John 17. We also will read a portion from Matthew chapter 25. The first John 17, beginning in verse 2, reading verses 2 and 3 and verse 24. John 17, 2. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he should give eternal life. And this is life eternal, that they should know you, the only true God, and him whom you did send, even Jesus Christ. Then verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. But when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the angels with him, then shall he sit on the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all the nations and he shall separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he shall set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left then shall the king say to them on his right hand come you blessed of my father Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when saw we you hungry and fed you? or a thirst, and gave you drink? And when saw we you a stranger, and took you in, or naked, and clothed you? And when saw we you sick, or in prison, and came to you? And the king shall answer and say to them, Verily I say to you, inasmuch as you did it unto one of, the, of these my brethren, even these least, you did it unto me. Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, Depart 
from me. You curse it. Into the eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you did not give me to drink. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer, saying, Lord, when saw we you hungry, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto you? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you did it not unto one of these least, you did it not unto me. And these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's bow together. Our Father, your word is truth. Hear the prayer of your Son, and this day sanctify us through your word. O Lord, we stand ashamed of ourselves in the light of gospel blessing and privilege, in the face of such wondrous things as we see in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have not rendered to us according to our deserving, nor rewarded us after our iniquities, but that there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. We thank you that we this morning have the blood and the righteousness of Jesus into which we may run and hide and from the sh- and in which from the storm and the terror without and within we may cover ourselves and be protected we thank you Lord that though we are unworthy and though we are sinners you love your people and we thank you that though we have this past week not served you, loved you, feared you or known you as we ought you have nevertheless not forsaken us or forgotten us and we are among those who are blessed Lord, though we are glad that you love us so as you chasten us, we pray that we would not now in this hour be chastened by having our minds and hearts turned away from your word. But we pray that your spirit would be sent in great abundance upon us that our hearts may be cleansed, opened, warmed, strengthened, and invigorated with new dimensions of faith that you would give to the preacher unction from above and that nothing in the earth or the heaven or beneath the earth would be able to deter or to keep your word from being preached as it ought to be preached. Make me faithful to the book. Make me faithful to your will. Guide my words and give hearing ears and obedient hearts to the hearer. O Lord, now draw near to us for the sake of your Son, for the purposes of his kingdom. And for the glory of your name, give us strength for Christ's sake. Amen. Now we have, in considering 
the 17th chapter of John and the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ observed that the object of his sufferings is nothing other than eternal life for his people. We have defined eternal life as essentially knowing God. We further have been in the process of explaining or defining or describing the recipients of eternal life. And we have defined them in the following ways. Those who possess eternal life are those who were given to Christ by the Father through sovereign selection, according to the will of God, not the will of man. Second, those who possess eternal life are those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he is presented in the gospel. Third, those who have eternal life dwelling within them are those who live in accordance with the true fruits of such faith in Christ. And we saw something in our brief survey of the Ten Commandments, what a person lives like if he is born of God and if he is alive forever with God. This morning, I want us, in a more brief fashion, to consider the fourth and final description of the recipients of eternal life, those who possess it, and then from that to lead into our last, I believe, message on this subject of eternal life by considering the full and final revelation of eternal life. We will consider in the first place those recipients of eternal life who are seen to be so by the fact that they willingly lose this life in order to obtain that one. One of the chief characteristics and descriptions of a truly saved man, a woman, a child is that he or she has demonstrated a willingness to lose this life in order to have that one. And from that then we'll consider the full and final revelation of this life that we call eternal life. First of all then, consider with me the fourth characteristic or description of those who possess eternal life. And as we've said, it is this. They are those who willingly lose this life in order to obtain that one. Not those who unwillingly lose this life. Not those who are killed prematurely or who have things taken away from them that they wish they could keep. But those who gladly suffer the loss of everything in this world, even their own earthly life, in order to obtain heavenly reward. Ted Turner, the communications magnet and wealthy man, said not too long ago, Christians are losers. He circulates among those who have not known much about what it means to have to beg or ask for anything. 
they take what they want. They are surrounded with the means of the obtaining of all the pleasures they possibly could want. He is now going to be married to a woman who has lived her life before this nation as one who has never had to ask for anything, grown up in the wealth of Hollywood, and had at her disposal all manner of pleasure, and has by her lifestyle repudiated everything that's good about the Christian faith. Jane Fonda and Ted Turner have joined together to live a life that publicly says to be a Christian is to be a loser. And if we were to judge from what they see, we might join them ourselves. Most people do judge from the vantage point of Ted Turner and Jane Fonda, and most people would agree that if you look at a Christian biblically, a true biblical Christian, you're seeing a person who has lost a lot to be a Christian. I agree with Ted Turner. Christians are losers. If by losers we mean what he means. Christians cannot, in good conscience, live the way he lives. Subsidize untruth on the airwaves among the airwaves, I believe I heard that CNN, which is owned by Turner Enterprises, is the most widely heard news uh, agency in the world. He is an influential man. And from his perspective, if you're really going to be a Christian the way you're supposed to be a Christian, you can't have it the way he has it. You can't twist the truth in order to make money. You can't manipulate people. You can't browbeat the little man. You can't run all over the world and do as you please. You are under authority. Your money is not your God. Your power and your fame and your influence is not your God. Another is your God. But the Bible makes it clear that if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to have eternal life, and if you're going to go to heaven when you die, you're going to lose this life. You're going to be a loser. He that does not lose this life will not find real life. He that will lose his own life for the sake of the gospel has already found it. Just two passages of scripture to support this statement. First, in John chapter 12, verse 25. The Lord never does call a Christian voluntarily to kill himself or foolishly to expose himself to death. The Lord expects us to be wise and to keep the sixth commandment and to preserve our own lives as we preserve others' lives. Suicide is ungodly, wretched, and foolish. It is the ultimate cop-out. It is in no way honored by the Lord or to be honored by the Lord. But the Lord also teaches how we ought to view our physical life in this world. In John 12:25, he says, He that loves his life loses it. And he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. A clear description of... A clear contrast. 
He that loves this life will not have eternal life. He that loves this life loses his life, his real life. He that hates his life in this world shall keep his real life unto eternal life. No words could be plainer. Now, what they mean and how they are expressed and how they come to fruition may be difficult to understand, but the words are clear. Whatever he means by loving our life in this world, it's clear that if we do, we cannot have the life of the next world. And whatever he means by hating our life in this world, it's clear that he means that if we do, we will save our lives in the world to come. We'll have eternal life. But another passage of Scripture, which is a graphic description of the issue, is found in Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. Referring back to an event in history in another place, we read in that Lot's wife turned and looked upon Sodom and was turned into a pillar of salt. The Lord tells us in one of his warnings of watchfulness regarding the second coming of Christ, remember Lot's wife. And the reason he tells us to remember Lot's wife is because in that one graphic picture of history which the world does not believe actually happened a woman married to a man on the way out of a beloved city a place they chose to live in a place that had brought them down and vexed them as they were leaving that city which was destined to the destruction of eternal fire she loved it so much that she turned back to look and if we understand the meaning of that language properly, we understand that that means not simply a glance with an eye, but a, glance, a look, a gaze with a heart. She looked with the desire to be able to stay there. She looked longingly back at Sodom. She was not grieved sufficiently by the perversion of that place. The fact that every man in the city had recently visited her house and would have known carnally her own virgin daughters did not grieve her enough to drive out of her her love for its things and its pleasures. She loved Sodom. And she turned and looked back at Sodom with that longing love. And she was turned into a pillar of salt. She stayed right there on that hillside for good as a memorial to the folly of cleaving to anything in this world in the face of the judgment of God. But this passage in Luke 9 gives another of the same picture. <coughs> the Lord in verse 59 says to another, Follow me. But he said... Lord, let me first go and bury my father. 
Now you would think on the surface that that is a perfectly legitimate request. After all, you have many friends but only one daddy. And there is something of responsibility to a son to see to it that the affairs around his father's estate and burial are taken care of. And if we understand his response, we believe he means not simply that dad died yesterday, the funeral is tomorrow, and I'm going to have to go to the funeral, I'll, I'll meet you wherever you're going to be and we'll continue on. That's not the import of this response. It means I want to move back home for a while and live out the older years of my dad and wait for several years till he finally passes on and maintain the estate and see to it that all the affairs are going on. I have to take care of all the things surrounding my father's eventual death. I'm planning to follow you. Pastor Allen, I was really moved by that sermon this morning. I really want you to pray for me. I've got to get right with God. I really intend to do so. Good. I'm glad God used that message. I'll see you tonight. Bye. I've had that that conversation enough times to make me nauseated. There's this picture in the minds of many in our day. Lord... I feel the power of the world to come upon my conscience. Your Spirit has spoken to me in the Bible. I know that what these men have preached to me is true. I know that I need change, great change in my life. I know that I'm all messed up and I'm ready to get it straight and I fully intend to be back here at the next appointed convenient hour but I don't have anything else to do because this stuff is good that I'm hearing. As for tonight, I've never been to church two times on the same Sunday. As for getting so enthralled in the Word of God that I'm afraid to miss what the same Spirit may say to another preacher tonight, I've got other plans. You've got to understand, our family has a custom of getting together late Sunday afternoons with the relatives for spaghetti. And if I told them that I'm going to go to some church on Sunday night, you know what they're going to say to me, you can overdo religion. We had no argument this morning while you attended church and we were in bed, but we're up now, we expect you to attend us. And surely, Pastor Allen, you understand that I am sincere about my comments about the early service, but you cannot expect me not to attend to my beloved family. How does God expect somebody to lose his whole family? Dear brethren, he expects you to lose your whole life. And some of you aren't even willing to give up two hours on Sunday evening to prove that the Word of God has gripped you where you really live. You say, you're being legalistic. I am not. You may as well tell me that you love breakfast and never show up for meals at lunch and supper and expect that I think food is a real important thing in your life as to tell me you love the morning sermon, but you, it's too much trouble or it's too much of an inconvenience or it's too much of an intrusion into your pre, pre-planned life and agenda for you to stop. He's asking to go home and tend to his beloved Father. Here's how the Lord responds in verse 60. He said to him, You leave the dead to bury their own dead. You leave the dead. Those people to whom you have made commitments are dead people. 
in terms of the life of God. They know not God. And you must never let your allegiance to them supersede or prevent your allegiance to me. You leave the dead to bury their dead. But you go and publish abroad the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me bid farewell to them that are at my house. Same problem. Attachment to true, earthly, close, intimate, trusted, loved family. He wants to go back and get them accustomed to this gradual adjustment he plans to make in his life. He wants not to make it a radical break. They won't understand. Perhaps he can hang around at home long enough that he can influence them to eventually believe on Christ as well. And surely, Lord, you want my help in this regard. But Jesus, verse 62, said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now what he means is, no man who having felt the power of the word of God upon his conscience, and having said, I plan to be a Christian, this stuff is real, I'll do what you say, Lord. And then, after getting his hand to that everlasting plow of God's furrow, looking back to the things of this world that he's going to have to lose if he starts now following Christ. He is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. That means he won't fit in, he doesn't belong, it's not appropriate for him to enter. It doesn't mean that he's going to the kingdom to heaven, but he's not going to fit in quite like another guy that's willing to sacrifice. It doesn't mean that he's a carnal Christian who's going to lose some of the rewards of heaven. It means he is proving that his heart is not one that belongs in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to have eternal life, you have to turn away from this life. You have to take your eyes off of it. You have to remove your heart from it. You have to give it up. And it includes your mother and your father and your children and your household and your wife and your husband. Some of you have suffered the loss of some of those things because of the gospel. I did not say, nor did the Lord ever teach, that you are to become so offensive to your relatives that they cannot live with you in peace because of what you are as a sinner. Never has the Lord honored or blessed those who by obnoxiousness have offended their neighbors. The Lord is not telling you to so preach to them that they cannot get a word in and therefore to live with you would be misery. The Lord has never said for us so to be self-righteous and arrogant and presumptuous and pushy and picky that nobody in his right mind would want to be around us. That is not what he's saying. But he has said that as far as your heart is concerned, you must make the transaction that there's nothing in this world you want. All you want is God's favor, God's smile, God's blessing, and God's way. And whatever he would give you of this world, you'll gladly use it for his glory. Otherwise, you could care less. And unless you have that attitude, you do not have eternal life dwelling within you. Because one of the biblical characteristics of a man or a woman or a child 
who possesses eternal life is that he is a willing, she is a willing giver-upper of this life and all the things in it. What is it that you hope you will not have to give up in order to get to heaven? Now, I did not say that we're supposed to hope to lose our families. But if in your heart there's still a dread of losing something in this world and hoping that maybe you won't have to come to grips with that issue in order to get to heaven, then you need to examine where your heart really is in the face of your claims. If the Lord told you to forsake father and mother and houses and lands and your own philosophies and your own habits or you couldn't know him, would you have any hesitation? Would it grieve you as it did the rich young man who went away sad because he had great riches? Most in this room do not have great riches, but there are some in this room who wish they did. And there are some who love money who've never had much of it. And your whole life has been committed to getting it. You're hoping, because you're smart enough to know the facts, that you can get the money and God at the same time. You best give up that hope. The chances are you're going to kill your soul in your pursuit of this world. Walking in the way of eternal life leading to heaven is utterly incompatible with loving this world and clutching its things, its pleasures, and its favor. Obeying the law of God will lose friends and bring hardship. If you are not prepared for that, you are not prepared to, to enter the way of eternal life. I hope you don't deceive yourself and say, I have given up a lot for Jesus, whenever you really have given up a lot because of you, your own attitude and spirit. But I trust that you are able to say, Lord, what is this world compared to your world? What is this life compared to eternal life? And I'm hoping that you'll never have to hesitate, whatever it is, it is a perpetually it is perpetually being laid on the altar. Some of us have to get up every morning and lay it back on the altar again. I mean that's typical of a Christian life where he's tempted to go back and think of Sodom again. The Christian is not one who's never tempted. He's not one who doesn't sometimes gaze and glance back. He's not one who sometimes uh, is not stirred to be confused about it and and comes close to throwing it out. He's not one who sometimes does not take a taste of that red stuff. But he is one who has learned that that red stuff is not worth it. And he is one who has no thought in his mind of ever intending to possess that as a perpetual possession. He would gladly drop it now for the glory and the sake of Christ. I don't have time to sort out with you all the ways in this room that there are the temptations to love something in this world and thereby lose your soul. 
But I can simply say this, that the Lord doesn't usually start with those little things. He starts with the ultimate. Your father, your mother, your wife and husband, your children, your houses, your lands, your own life. You see, if you get that taken care of, it doesn't matter. Everything else is covered. He takes... He doesn't say, now, you know if you become a Christian that once in a while somebody down at work may say something sort of questionable about you in the office and you may be laughed at. He doesn't start with that. That's nothing. He starts with the the dearest and most intimate companionship and acceptances in life. And he demands that they be nothing compared to him. Now, dear brethren, let's get Jesus straight. There's no compromise with him on this issue. He may be tender-hearted, but he's not soft-headed. It's settled. Hear it again. If you have embarked on the path of everlasting life, you have embarked upon a path of affliction and suffering and sacrifice. And if you are afraid that, that that's going to happen and you're hoping to avoid it, you may as well get off this path. Because this one will lead to trouble for you. You're going to lose things because of Christ. And if you don't want to do that, be honest with yourself and be a pagan. You can't have it both ways. He that has put his hand to the plow and looks back in the way of Lot's wife isn't fit for the kingdom of heaven. The final characteristic that I want you to think about of those who have eternal life is that they willingly lose this life in order to obtain that one. We have a generation of professing Christians that have clutched both and think they can keep both and are using the one to get the other. And they're greatly deluded. They think that a successful church has a lot of money and big buildings and a thriving, multi-faceted ministry, including roller skates and swimming pools and universal rooms. And you can go into some portions of this country today and visit Protestant churches, and all you'll hear as you go into the offices and listen to the staff members is how they compare their recreational facilities to the church down the street. You can go into places today in the real world, into Baptist church buildings, where Baptist pastors haven't thought for months about the condition of the souls of their people, but only think about the condition of the floor of the gymnasium. I have witnessed with these eyes and these ears a Baptist preacher more angry over the bacon not being cooked right in the church cafeteria than over 55% of his people who never show up in the building. Why? It's because they got mixed up and they thought the things of this world were the same as the things of God's world and that godliness is a way of gain. It's not so. No doubt that what's about to occur and has been occurring for some years in America and will in my book, probably continue and come to great unprecedented culmination in the collapse of our society will be God's way of testing true Christianity. 
will find out who can do without as long as he has the Lord Jesus and his church. The Lord has a way of leveling us and testing us. Make sure you understand that if there is an aspect of this world that you're unwilling to turn loose of, there is no aspect of the world to come that you have a right to. And you shall not see life in the world to come. Willingly lose this life to gain the next. We could spend months on that subject, but I want to move you from that to consider, because there's an integral relation between the two, the full and final revelation of eternal life. We read in Matthew chapter 25 what's going to occur the day the Lord Jesus descends from heaven. In other, in ways of understanding the biblical doctrine of eternal life, we've considered various elements of it and aspects of it and a, and a description of the recipients of it. But today I want us to think about what its final full picture and revelation is going to be. Now there is the fact, before we look at that final revelation, of the present reality of eternal life. The Bible says, he that has the Son has life. Now I, I want to emphasize that because there are those who believe you get eternal life when you die. That is not the time you get it. It's a present reality in every believer's soul. That is very vital to assurance of faith. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but now we do know this, we are the sons of God. Now we have eternal life. Here is the evidence that we have eternal life. If we have the Son of God, we have life. There is the present reality of eternal life, which many in churches have no confidence about. Some have never even heard of it. Some have gone to church for years and never heard a sermon on eternal life. They don't know what it is or how to get it. We are confident that you understand that if you believe in Christ, you will be able to say with the Apostle John, we have passed out of death into life. Eternal life doesn't begin at death, but at the moment we're born from above of the Spirit. There are evidences to people that have it. They walk according to the law of God. They love the name of God. They love the worship of God. They love the house of God, the church. They love the people of God. You can tell they love the people of God because they enjoy being with them when they meet. They love the ways of God. They love his kingdom, and they do not love this present evil age. They have no ambitions in this world, except the holy kind of using this world to the glory of God. They want to get a better job, but not so they can keep more of the world. They want a better job so they can give more, help their family be prepared for adulthood more, and have more to supply in the kingdom of God. Eternal life explains why some people in this world are happy while they are, in Ted Turner's words, losers. But there is a vast aspect of eternal life in Christ which is not yet apparent to us in this age. It's that aspect of eternal life that 
we think about when we hear the apostles say, we see through a glass dimly. We walk by faith, not by sight. We look not on the things which are seen, but upon the things which are unseen. Don't you know what it's like to say, I have eternal life, and yet you get up a lot of mornings and you don't feel anything, and you don't see anything, and your Bible seems to be closed, and you wonder if it's real? Many of us struggle from time to time. Perhaps every believer struggles with the fact that his book is often closed and his heart is often dull and he wonders where God is and he's tempted to ask, is there a God? I believe we live in a time in which that temptation is all the more powerful. I don't know exactly why, but it seems that the devil has a foot in the door. He invades Christians' dreams and makes them wake up wondering if there's a God. Perhaps because we've let our brains be so subject to such junk in this world that our brains are not well defended against dreams. But see, there's an aspect of eternal life we haven't seen. In the passage we quoted from 1 John chapter 3, he says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. But then he goes on to say, And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Something does appear. We see evidence for it. We've established evidence for it. We're the children of God. We have eternal life. But we don't know what we're going to be. That hasn't appeared yet. We don't see that yet. We are walking by faith. We're not walking by sight. Or how many of us wish we could see it. We wish God would show us. And all He's done is given us the Bible and His Spirit. And how we wish we could just know for sure. And yet we have to lay claim on words like this. Faith is the evidence. Faith is the assurance. Some of us are frustrated with faith. We wish we could live by something other than faith. We wish we didn't just have words to believe out of the mouth of God. We wish we could have seen God when he said them out of his mouth. Now let's look at it from a human perspective for a minute. When did God speak to you? Did you see a vision? Some of you saw visions before you became Christians. Didn't change your life any. So a vision wouldn't have done you much good. No, you heard words. As we suggested recently, you may have heard those words many times in your life. But you heard them one day, and they became alive to you. And something inside testified to the truth of those words. And they gave you a Bible, and you started reading it. And some days it seemed more true than at other days. But over the long haul, you've always been able somehow to go back to that book and know it's true. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Another they will not follow. And one of the characteristics of you who are believers is that you do know God's voice, and you believe it. Oh, feebly, yes. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But you believe it, or you wouldn't ask the Lord to help your unbelief. You know it's there, because you keep resorting to Him. And you've seen in your own life, if you'll back up and look at some of the positives once in a while, that there have been many times that you've rejected temptation, that you've turned away from things of this world because you were unwilling to lose what you could barely see. 
as seeing him who's invisible, you lost things that were visible. And that proves there's something real there. But you wish sometimes you could see it. Well, you can't. Not yet. But I want us to ask three questions and try to answer them biblically. First, when will we see the invisible aspects of everlasting life? When will all men see what right now nobody can see? You see, they don't see it in us. They look at us and we're losers. They don't see what's in us. They haven't seen it in themselves. No wonder they think we're losers. From a purely rationalistic perspective, one cannot blame the Ted Turners of this world. If what I knew weren't true, I would sympathize with his judgment. But if he knew what is true, he would sympathize with mine. I understand his predicament. He hasn't seen what I've seen. He hasn't heard what I've heard. He hasn't known what I've known. But there'll come a day when he will. When all will see. And we will see. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But it will one day appear. The second question we'll attempt to answer is this. What shall occur at that time when eternal life is fully revealed? And the third question we'll attempt to answer. Why must it occur? Happen. Exactly what's going to happen when it happens, and why must it happen? Follow with me as we consider it. And the way I want you to do it, in the minutes that remain, is turn to Romans chapter 8. Basically what I'm trying to say is that when Jesus comes again, we're going to see eternal life in its full revelation and manifestation. It's not fully seen now, but it will be. Follow with me in Romans 8, beginning with verse 6. And this links what we've been preaching about the evidences of eternal life to what we're preaching today. Verse 6 says, For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. The contrast between death and life. There are people walking around who are dead, and there are people walking around who are alive. From God's vantage point, relating to God, there are people who are dead. The mind of the flesh is death. But there are other people who are alive and at peace with God. The mind of the Spirit is life and peace. But it gives us a reason. Why is this so? Verse 7. Because the mind of the flesh is enmity against God. That's why the mind of the flesh is death. Because the mind of the flesh is enmity against God. It doesn't love God. It's opposing God. Well, how so? The last clause of verse 7. For it is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can it be. The mind of the flesh is death. Because the mind of the flesh is at enmity with God. In what way do we see that the mind of the flesh is at enmity with God? Because the mind of the flesh is not subject to the law of God. What is a man described who has eternal life? He's one who lives in the light of the, sa of the fruits of saving faith. He's one that shows the evidence. And what did we describe as those fruits? Conformity to the law of God. He delights in the law of God after the inward man. 
He loves the law of God. He obeys his commandments and they're not grievous. Those are descriptions of a man with eternal life. But the mind of the flesh is death. Because the mind of the flesh is against God. And that is seen in the fact that the mind of the flesh will not willingly subject itself to God's law. That's why we must continue to emphasize the importance and the centrality of the law of God in the aspects of truth. That is why we cannot compromise and pretend that we can preach the gospel apart from preaching the law. That's why we do not apologize for plowing up our consciences as best we can. Pointing out to Christians the places where they are not conforming to God's law and to unsaved men and women the fact that they in their whole life have not subjected themselves to it. It's the way we relate to the law of God that describes and defines what we are. We're either saved or lost. We're either alive or dead. But then verse 10 goes on to develop the thinking. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. We don't have time thoroughly to expound that chock full verse. But what he's saying there, that those of you whose bodies are the bond slaves of death and are the house of death, if Christ lives in you, you're alive. The Spirit, life in the Spirit, things the world can't see. They look at the body. It's decaying. The outer man is perishing. But there's something the world cannot see. The Spirit, that's life. Righteousness. You never can separate life from righteousness, and you never can separate death from sin. The ethical issues of the gospel are the things that describe and define the shape of the believer or the unbeliever. You're not saved because you decided to be saved. You're saved in conjunction with having been turned from your sins to love the law of God. If you do not love the law of God or any aspect of the law of God, you've not been saved. Don't kid yourself. You're not a Christian who has some problems. You're an enmity with God and you're dead. In your trespasses against the law of God. In your sins against the law of God. But if Christ lives in you, though your body is given over to death because of sin, your spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, Then, since that's the case, if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ Jesus from the dead shall give life also to your mortal bodies through His Spirit that dwells in you. Now we get into the language of future. If He's alive in you, therefore you're alive. He shall also make you alive, even your mortal body, which is now dead. There is death in my body. This body of death, Romans 7 says. I'm captive and slave to the corruptions of this body. The best motives of my sinning, of my saved heart, are frustrated with my inner corruptions, my remaining sins. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And the answer to that question is what is occupying all of chapter 8 of Romans. 
That question is asked in chapter 7. And everything after that for the, until the end of chapter 8 answers that question. How am I going to be delivered from this body of death? The spirit that dwells in me will do the same thing to my mortal body that it did to Christ's body. If he raised up Jesus from the dead, he'll raise up mine from the dead. And then skip down to verse 18. Future tense things, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. There's something in the future that has not come yet. There's a revealing of something in the future. It's connected with glory. We don't see the glory now. We behold it in a glass dimly and we are transformed into an image likened to that glory from stage to stage, but it's really well hidden. And yet the time is coming when that glory is going to be revealed in us or to us, and then that's going to show forth why that the sufferings of this present age aren't worthy to be compared with it, and why it was we were able by faith to endure those sufferings. It is by hope that we're saved. It is in hope that we're saved. And he goes on in verse 19 to say, For the earnest expectation of the creation, the cosmos, waits for what? The revealing or the manifestation of the sons of God. The whole universe is expectantly waiting for one thing. The revealing of the sons of God. Well, you, I thought we were sons of God. Why doesn't the creation look at us and rejoice? They can't see it. It has not been revealed. Behold, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We know that we are the sons of God, but we hardly see it and the world can't see it at all. But the day is coming when the whole creation will see unveiled in glory the sons of God, what they really are. <coughs> when they see Him, they'll be like Him. The whole creation is expectant. Waiting for what? Waiting for the day when you get your crown of glory. Waiting for the day when you have your coming out. When you're your debut. Waiting for the day when now you can be entrusted with the mantle of glory. Waiting for the hour of glorification. The whole creation is waiting for it. Then verse 23. Not only so but ourselves also. Not just the creation at large and the inanimate creation, but ourselves also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting. Waiting for what? For our adoption. What is our adoption? The redemption of our body. What's happened when God saved you is He put a stamp on you, on all of you. He put an indelible stamp on your body and He marked it out for a day to come. Like the Romans used to do in with the cedars of Lebanon. And they would go into Lebanon and they would go up into the forest and they would put the Roman seal on all the trees that they wanted shipped to Rome so that when the lumberjacks came to cut down the trees 
when they found the Roman seal on a tree, that, that tree was going to go to Rome. It had the seal of Rome on it. And that tree is destined to Rome. And they cut it down, they put it on a boat, and they got it there. If you ever found a tree with that seal imprinted in it, someplace besides Rome, somebody's in trouble. They were sealed until the day of redemption. The day in which the Caesar sent the money, paid for the lumber, and it came to Rome. You have been sealed. If you've come to Christ by faith, God put his indelible stamp upon you, the earnest of the Spirit, the seal of the Spirit, you were sealed to the day of redemption. You are marked out for redemption. Now, our redemption was accomplished by Christ on the cross. We have been delivered from the bondage of sin, and yet in our real mortal bodies there's this remaining tugging question, what gives? If I'm saved, why am I still struggling? Who's going to deliver me from the actual daily reality of this frustrating sin I can't get rid of? you understand that question? Do you know what I'm speaking about? If you love the law of God, you understand it. Because you know how in every way you fall short of it and miss it. And it grieves you and angers you. Sometimes it just about drives you up a wall. Sometimes you wish you could just tear your limbs off if you could free yourself from the agony of your continued failure in, in the law of God. If you're sitting back smugly saying, I don't know what you keep talking about this struggle. I've never struggled as a Christian. Then you've never been a Christian. You see, that's not fair. It's just biblical. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And the description of a saint of God, a mature saint of God, is one battling against sin every day. And sometimes it isn't a happy battle. Now get that straight. I'm not preaching my prejudice. I'm preaching the Bible. And my own experience supports it. And the experience of every knowledgeable saint I've ever read supports it. Don't you stand by yourself and oppose that which has been proven true through the centuries. There's a frustration. We groan. The whole creation groans. Why? Because something hasn't happened that's going to happen. When's it going to happen? Well, it's the redemption of the body. It's going to happen at the day of resurrection. That's the answer to the first question. The day of resurrection. Well, what's going to happen at the day of resurrection? When is the resurrection going to happen? When are the bodies going to come forth? But don't turn there, but 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ the firstfruits, then they that are Christ's at his coming. Not at his second, uh, two and a half coming, or his fourth coming, or the first aspect of his third coming. And I say that with, with a little ridicule, because the scriptures are clear at his coming. The blessed hope, the coming of the Lord. For the Lord shall descend, and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God shall sound, and the dead shall be raised. Period. Somebody says, oh, these pastors that preach this so shallow. They, all they, they, don't, they haven't studied the deeper things. And all they know is that Jesus is coming and everybody's going to rise. But there's so much more intricate stuff we can learn. If we go to a prophecy conference, I wish that guy had read Schofield. I did. I preached it. 
I'm not stupid. I'm not ignorant about it. But my Bible is simple. The Lord's coming and the dead are going to be raised. When He comes, at His coming. They're not going to come out of the graves till He comes. And not a one is going to stay after He comes. At His coming. Now you say, but that's just Christians they're talking about. That's the rapture. That's the secret rapture. But see, it's going to be seven years after that, after Russia's burned all their tanks, that then Jesus is... No. No, because John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 says, there's coming a de- an hour when all they that are in the tombs are going to hear the voice of the Son of God, every last one of them, and they're all going to come out. Some of them to the resurrection of judgment and some of them to the resurrection of life. But they're all coming out. When? When Jesus descends from heaven. No one's going to leave the grave before then, but everybody's going to leave it when he comes. The great, the next great event in human history is the second coming of Jesus Christ. I didn't say the next one that everybody thinks is great. The real great one. Certainly the next great redemptive event is the coming of Christ from heaven. The ultimate seal and the determiner of everything that's going to happen afterwards is the second coming of Christ. All destiny will be settled when he comes. He will descend from heaven. A trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised. And history will be settled. Everything in all of history is moving to the glorious coming of Jesus Christ from heaven. This morning, dear brethren, everything that's happening in the world is preparing for the coming of Christ. Everything is being orchestrated for that moment. Everything. Everything. Every heart, every motive, every act, every king, every governor is headed for the second coming, just in the path God wants him to head. And they're all going to converge together with us at that hour. God has appointed a day. God has appointed a day. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the living and the dead through the man whom he has ordained. And he signified that by raising him from the dead. God has appointed a day. God has appointed a day. What I'm saying to you, if you want to apply it, is all the other stuff you're planning pales into insignificance in the light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's coming. And you better get yourself ready for that day. That's all that's going to count. Some of us have to learn that hard. Some of us have to taste everything in this world before we understand that it doesn't satisfy. Some of us are so thick-headed as we heard on Pastor Martin's sermon about soul thirst and how it satisfied, some of us have to drink everything before we find out that nothing in this world can feed our souls. Some of us are so stupid and thick-headed that we just don't believe God when he says, this won't satisfy, this won't satisfy, there's only one thing that will. Some of you sit here this morning, you're still flirting with things that will take you to the pit. Wake up. Wise up. You're in the shape you're in because you've refused to submit to the law of God. You've refused to repent from the heart. With the mouth, with tears, yes, but not from the heart. 
You meant well. You just never turned. And I tell you, you're headed running fast to an appointment with your destiny and the coming of Christ. And I would say this, though we have preached much and taught much to try to remove from this congregation's mind that it has to happen in our generation. We want to humble our generation. It doesn't have to happen in our generation. However, you would be a fool of fools to assume you're living in a generation for which there are ample evidences that Jesus is going to have a hard time not coming. Did I say he has to? No. But I tell you what, for you to think, well, Pastor Allen said it didn't have to. Probably won't. I tell you, it probably will. I, I tell you, the Lord probably will return soon. Soon by our reckoning. If he doesn't, he won't defy the Bible, and he'll just make me mistaken in my assumptions. But I tell you, you'd be an utter fool not to be living every day as though he's going to come back soon, because you're going to be greatly surprised when he does. The warnings are all around us. The gospel has covered the earth, brethren. Every nation's heard the gospel. What are you waiting for? When the Lord comes on the earth, shall he find the faith? Apostasy is rampant. There are few that love the truth. It's not a day of big things. We're not observing great response to the gospel. Now, is that, did we quit praying? No, and it may well yet be. God can eliminate America and start another movement with China or Russia or the South America. God knows what he's doing, but I tell you, don't you assume he won't come. At an hour that you think not, that's when he'll come. And when he comes, it's going to be over. What does occur when he comes? Well, first of all, the resurrection of the bodies of everybody that ever lived. All the bodies that are in the tomb is going to come out. That's the first thing. We read that. Second, when the Lord comes, judgment's going to happen. There are several aspects to that judgment, but let's get it straight what they are. How I wish that some of you so could believe this, that you would quit resisting what I'm preaching. I wish some of you could understand the heaviness of this reality enough to submit your rebellious mind so that you could save yourself from this day. The day of judgment in which, first of all, the whole universe will be renovated. Second Peter chapter 3 speaks of the day of the Lord. It shall come in which the elements themselves, the basic building blocks of, of matter, are going to melt with a fervent heat. That house and that car you've labored for are going to burn. All the alabaster cities of men are going to burn. The air we breathe is going to melt down. Hebrews 1 describes it. It shall wax old like a garment, and it will fade away, the universe. The world is passing away. The world will finally be burned up. Oh, dear brethren, nothing will be left standing. God's going to shake it. He's going to shake the universe. Do not presume that the ground under your feet is solid. God's going to shake it. 
And all that cannot be shaken is all that will remain. Whatever is shakable by God will shake. God's going to rattle the cage of the Ted Turners who stand on their bank accounts and on their powerful influence. And some who sit in churches smug in the heart resisting the pleadings of preachers. God's going to shake and there's not going to be anything left. Your lusts, which you refuse to mortify, are going to be rattled out of you. And you are going to find that they did not satisfy nor secure. The universe is going to be renovated. Not not annihilated, but renovated. Melted, burned up, and redone. A new heaven and a new earth. Born out of this, just like this body. This body is going to rise. This body is going to be glorified. This body is going to be changed into another kind of body, but it's the same body. There's a, there's a continuity, as we've studied, on the resurrection of the body. There's going to be a continuity in the universe. The whole creation is waiting for us to be renovated, so it can be renovated with us. There's going to be a redoing of the universe. It's, it's a delightful thought. I told my children, Daddy, we're going to have dogs in heaven. I don't know, but we're going to have something that's equivalent in heavenly excessive terms to what you have found as pleasurable in your pets here. I don't understand it, but the Bible speaks of a universal restoration of lions and lambs and bears. And if that's not to be taken physically, literally, it's to be taken somehow because whatever bliss and peace and precious things there are in the animal kingdom, somehow that's going to be multiplied in heaven. You say, well, I want dogs. What if it's something other than dogs? It'll be better than dogs. That's the point. My own personal opinion is it'll probably be dogs and cats and everything else in a new world. But whatever it is, it's going to be sweet and blessed. Day of judgment, the universe is going to be renovated. Everything that doesn't stand the fires of God is going to burn up. Your thoughts, your bad motives, your allegiance to things that are passing, even how noble they are, are all going to burn. Next thing that's going to happen in the day of judgment is the confirmation of our character forever. The confirmation of our character forever. When Jesus Christ comes, you're set. Let him that is unrighteous be unrighteous still. Let him that is righteous be righteous yet more. When Jesus comes, there will be no more repenting after that. There will be no more days in which you can confess your sins after that. There will be no more mornings after there will be no more reproves, uh, uh, retrievals. There will be no more ability to take back what you said and did. There will be no more time. There will be no more forgiveness of sin. There will be no applying anymore of the blood of Jesus to the sinner after he comes. There will be no more counseling sessions available while you're de debating whether you want to make the break with your sins and come to Christ. There'll be no more sermons to be heard while you wait and take your time. There'll be no more Christians praying for your salvation. When Jesus comes, what you are when he comes will be sealed forever. And you'll never change. Dear brethren, dear friends, 
you who have had a hard enough time changing now, it's coming a time soon when there'll be no more struggle at all. You're set. One of the worst things about hell is that you will continue to live in the midst of, and as one of, a multitude of sinful people. You will still be a rotten sinner, yet you'll have no hope of ever changing. This morning, there's hope for you. This morning, it is not too late for you to repent and to be broken under the power of the Spirit of God's Word and to run to Christ and have your sins forgiven and get on the way of eternal life. This morning, you have a chance. I cannot predict this afternoon. I cannot promise that when I'm, that I'll finish preaching. I wish that all of us could get under the load of the urgency and the imminency of Christ's return enough that when we begin to pray, we're actually afraid that He may come before we've prayed for somebody. And I'm not speaking of insanity. I'm speaking of reality. There needs to be influencing us. The knowledge that this may be my last time to intercede for my lost loved one. This afternoon may be my last time to decide what to do with my time. This may be the last sermon you ever hear. It's not too late for you. May God be praised that you're hearing it. Now you have saved yourself from walking out of here with your little agenda of the little trinkets of this world that you plan to continue hoping God never asked you of them. Jesus is coming and your ball game and your hunting trip and your physical lusts and the things you shove into your fat face to satisfy something that's inside you will be over. And the day of grace is finished. And your character will be confirmed. It's true for the saint as well. You'll be confirmed in righteousness and holiness. Let him that is righteous be righteous yet more. What a day that's going to be. But also not only the confirmation of your character, but when Jesus comes there will be a separation of the righteous from the wicked. The text we read in Matthew 25 He'll separate them the way a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. You won't be able to come into the congregation of the righteous in that day and hear sermons and hear crumbs dropping off the table from the children. You'll not be able to be in a society in which the Christian is actually salting it and keeping it from being destroyed because his presence is in it. You'll not be having the benefit of living in a culture with light because of saints who are honest. Did you know this morning that among most of the people you know, the very few that are going to tell you the truth are going to be Christians. And there's coming a day when you're not going to be around Christians. There won't be anybody to motivate anybody to build a hospital just for the sake of healing people. America's hospital system's already left that vision. We left it a long time ago. We don't care about healing as much anymore as we care about profit. I would much rather provide free medical care than free perverted art if I had to make a choice. But the time is coming when the unrighteous who wish we would get out of their face are going to have their wish. 
and they're going to be separated. And they'll know for the first time the influence the Christian church has had on preserving their life. They'll know for the first time what we prayed on Wednesday nights here for years that kept them from plunging into the pits. They'll see, they'll hear our prayers on the day of judgment, and for the first time they'll understand why God has been patient with them. There'll be a separation. There'll be no wickedness enter into that city of heaven, and the righteous won't also have to live in this world. It works both ways. There'll be a time when you won't have a neighbor who hates you because you're a Christian. There'll be a time when you won't have an employer who will seek to persecute you to drive out of you your faith. There'll be a time when your family members will not leave you or forsake you over your confidence in Christ. But all the family will stick by. Separation is coming. Finally, in the day of judgment, the Lord is going to remove the wicked from the scene. Not only separate them from the righteous, but he's going to consign them to that place prepared for the devil and his angels. You know why that verse is in there? He doesn't mean that he accident. He meant to sort the devil and his angels, but accidentally some other people got involved, and now he's going to have to, as an afterthought, throw them into hell too. He means that the punishments and the flames of hell were prepared sufficient to punish angels. And that when men are plunged there, they're going to be enduring the kinds of torments that were prepared for angels. Superman. Someday, God's going to remove the wicked into outer darkness, onto everlasting torments, and there'll be no escaping. Do you wish I hadn't preached that? I did. Because it's true. May God help us believe it's true. What a day of revelation that's going to be when all that we've preached, whether we preached it with vehemence or shallowly, is going to turn out to be true. It ought to affect our television watching. It ought to affect our prayers. It ought to affect our appetites. It ought to affect our budgets. It ought to affect everything in our lives. If we can learn to live in the light of the judgment day, if we can learn to confess sin with judgment day honesty, if we can learn to look at judgment day, believe it, it'll make an impact on the way we live. Some of you will escape the wrath and the fires of hell. And some of you will escape the bondage that you still have to your pet sins. But another thing occurs, and I can't stop on that note, even though the time is late, I, I must give the other side. Not only is it a day of judgment, but it's a day of blessing. The saint does not look at this day as a threat. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for your king comes. Come quickly, dread judge of all, the saint cries. Oh, a day of wrath, a day of desperate separation, a day of final confirmation of character, a day where the wicked will be for the first time aware that the gospel was true and that he had been living against God and he deserves hell. It's also going to be a day of blessing. The saints call it the blessed hope and the glorious appearing 
of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It'll be a day in which the Lord comes and releases us from our corruption. Romans 8.21 tells us the liberty delivered from the bondage of corruption to the liberty of the sons of God. The day we're manifested, the whole creation is liberated from its corruption. That's when we'll be liberated from this bondage and this body's death. That's when your back won't ache anymore. That's when your heart won't sin anymore. That's when you won't look forward more to lunch than the rest of this sermon anymore. That's the day when when you will be what you're supposed to be and I'll be what I'm supposed to be, holy. You're going to be released from your corruptions, inwardly and outwardly. That's a blessing. Oh, dear brethren, there won't be any medicines in heaven the way they are here. Your regular appetite in heaven is going to keep you healthy. There won't be anybody's graves in heaven. There won't be any familial grief. There won't be any separations in heaven. All the decay and the corruption of this time will have been gone. Release from corruption. Translation into bliss. Come, you righteous. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Can you think what that's going to sound like in your ears? Come, you righteous. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. You can you can you picture those words coming into your ears? Some of you that feel so guilty and broken down and undeserving, and you can hardly make yourself pray in the morning because of what a wretch you know yourself to be, and you're going to hear from the smiling face of your Redeemer who is perfectly holy when he says it and perfectly righteous in giving it. Come on in. He's not going to say it to the unrepentant TV talk show host. He's going to say it to his people. He is going to say it to them, though. He's going to say, come on in. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. One of my sons dreamed about the golden streets of heaven the other day. One of the other ones said, I wish I could dream about heaven. And I was thinking, I wish I could, too. But we're not going to have to dream about it. We're going to see it and walk on it. And we're going to be called righteous. Translation into real bliss. I don't even know how to describe it. But I tell you what, it's all there. And the only way to get there is through the Son of God. Something in my soul this morning tells me that I am preaching against opposition. And something in my soul this morning tells me I'm preaching to some who do not understand that what I'm saying is absolutely true. And if I seem like a little bit of a pushy preacher who just doesn't want to let you go home till I've tried you out a little longer and pressed on you a little bit more, it is because there's coming an hour in which you will not be able to hear a sermon long enough to satisfy your lust, your desire for it. And there's coming an hour when the blessed of God are going to enter into bliss and the cursed of God are going to be shut out forever. And I'd like for you to ask yourself, where do you stand in regard to that day? And if you don't have, you don't have to like me and you don't have to deal with my sermon, but you've got to deal with that day. 
you must deal with the coming of Jesus Christ and you must deal with what it may cost you to get to that day with a clean bill and a clean slate and a clean conscience. But I tell you, nothing is more vital to you as a person than that day. What blessing will be given to the saints and what blessing will be missed by the unrepentant? We don't know what we shall be, but we do know this. We shall be like Him. We shall be like Him. The day of blessing is the day of glory in which the true nature of the sons of God is going to come out in the open. It's going to be revealed. We're going to be like Christ. Beloved, we do not know yet what we shall be, but we know this, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And the day you see Him in His glory, you will be unable to be anything other than transformed into it. The Lord has destined His people to be conformed to the image of His Son. And when Jesus comes, He'll finish the job. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality, because he has consigned us to glory. It's utterly, absolutely necessary that Christ come. He must keep his word. He must finish the work of his redemption. And he must perfect that which he started when he put his seal and his stamp upon his people. The Lord Jesus is coming. It must occur because he must put down his last enemy, which is death. It would be utterly impossible for Christ to leave this thing unfinished. He must come and judge his enemies. He cannot allow them to continue to exist against him. I wish you could stand in this pulpit, brethren, and look across this place at the closed eyes that, have, that are bored with what they're hearing. I wish you knew how grieved I am that I can't preach better than I do. I wish you knew how guilty I feel that I'm a sinner and can't preach the way I ought to. But I wish you could wake up and hear what's happening. Why must it happen? Because Jesus Christ has earned the kingdom and he must put down all his enemies. He must reign till he has put down his last enemy, which is death. Why must it happen? Because we are the first fruits. He has given to us the first fruits of his spirit and the first fruits assumes a full harvest. He has started the harvest. We have been given the first fruits. We shall receive the finished product. Christ cannot stop short of that day in which he will judge the world and bless his people. Dear brethren, let us be prepared. Let us make sure nothing else stops us from that day. Let us make sure that we do what it takes to get our hearts ready to the, for the hour in which righteousness will be made plain, the sons of God manifested and God glorified. I say this to you, Mr., don't you go home this afternoon and think that a sloppy, lazy response to this sermon and an ignoring of coming back to this place when preaching is here again tonight is going to be the way you're going to get closer to God and prevent the day of coming 
when wrath is going to rest upon your head forever. Don't you be such a fool as to think you decide when you're going to pick up and choose to hear God. It may be the last time. May it not happen to anybody in this place. May God have mercy on this congregation and on this preacher. And may we be able to stand blameless in the day of Christ. Let's bow together. Our Father, we don't need to inform you of how unworthy we are for you to use our meager offerings, nor do we need to be able publicly to debate with you and to describe in your presence and to your ear our own knowledge of our unworthiness. But we offer these fish and loaves to you who knows how to multiply and feed the multitudes. We offer these feeble efforts coming from lips who are far from being sinless into ears that are far from being sinless and ask you that by your spirit even at this last hour you may apply the truths of of eternity to us that we may go out under their pressure and live in their light Lord we look forward to the day when you shall return and we would ask you to make it soon We would ask you in the meantime to make our hearts more longing for that day in which righteousness will prevail and glory will come and the righteous and the wicked will be separate. Lord, may none of us be numbered among the goats. Oh, have mercy upon us. Oh, have mercy upon us. And magnify the word of truth to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.